If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy, but there's good news this morning. Chapter 11. Deuteronomy chapter 11. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 133. But when you found your place in Deuteronomy chapter 11, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, this is the word of the Lord. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth, right in the middle of all Israel, and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Let's pray together. We ask now, Lord, that you would, uh, as always, bless this reading and hearing of your word. Thank you so much, Spirit of God, that you indwell your people, that you are present with us and in us, even In these moments, we pray now that you would be our teacher, opening our eyes to what we need to see and our hearts and minds to what we need to understand, showing us the changes we need to make so when you look at us, you can tell more and more that we are the people of God, about the work of God. So we pray that you'll do these things for us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at chapter 10, verse 22, and we saw how the forefathers of these people who are now gathered on the plains of Moab, ready to enter into the promised land, we looked at the story of how they went down into Egypt, how when they went down, they were only 70 people, but now they are as numerous as the stars of the sky. All of that was according to the plan of God, to fulfill the promise of God that he made to Abraham. When he took Abraham out, who was childless, he said, look up at the stars in the night sky. Count the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. So from those 70 people who went down to Egypt, they are now number in the millions. What we might call a a mass of people, or this enormous lump of people. A lump that needed to be shaped and molded. So that when you looked at the corporate whole, you could recognize them, who they were and what they were about. You know, you and I might stand in front of a a Picasso or a piece of modern art, and we may think, hmm, I wonder what that is, or I wonder why that is. But you should never ask those questions about God's people. They should always readily be identifiable for who they are and what they're about. Well, how does that happen? How do God's people take this shape that we are supposed to have so that we are so readily recognizable? Well, it isn't going to happen 
It is not going to happen from the inside out through a process of self-discovery. And by that I mean this lump of people, they're not going to be able to shape themselves by trial and error, by natural selection. They'll, They'll never by that process be able to figure out who it is they are supposed to be. If the lump did shape itself, I think we would have to refer to that as evolution, wouldn't we? And what would the end of that process produce? The world-famous philosopher in the 19th century, Herbert Spencer, he read Charles Darwin's book on the origin of the species, and in 1964, he coined a phrase that every one of you in this room know. Maybe biologists don't use it so much nowadays, but you know it. And the phrase is, survival of the fittest, right? Charles Darwin liked the term so much, he used it in his fifth edition uh, of that book. And survival of the fittest, that, that the most fitted to the condition will survive. The most fitted to the condition will survive. So the goal of life then begins to uh, becomes survival, and life takes on this com- competitive feel. So if the lump shapes itself, life will be about me surviving, life will be about me winning. And then life won't really be about the lump at all, will it? It'll be about each individual member that comprises that lump. And yet, in chapter 10, we just read about it not so many weeks ago, about widows and orphans and aliens, definitely the weakest, most vulnerable, definitely the least able to fit in the culture of their day, definitely the first that would disappear in the natural selection process. Yet, how does God feel about this group of people? Well, he loves them. He defends them. He provides for them. He cares for them. And he tells his people to do the very same thing. So we would never, left on our own, evolve into such an attitude. Why would we? If we cared for people like these people, the weak ones, if we dragged them along, pulled them along, tried to preserve their lives, what's going to happen to our life? We'll be least likely to survive ourselves. What's inside us would never come up with this plan. We hear Jesus calling the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned the least of these, my brothers. The least of these. And yet Jesus says when you feed them, when you clothe them, when you welcome them, when you visit them, it's just like you did it for me. I see the gospel being for the least fit and the infinitely Undeserving. The sinners, the sick, the sexually immoral, the schemers, the swindlers. These are the ones who gathered around Jesus. And these are the ones that Jesus welcomed to himself. So no, the lump cannot shape itself. Not and turn out to look like what God wants us to look like or do what God calls us to do. You know, not so many years ago, Church planters, this is how you went about planting a church. You got this big bank of phones. You got all these volunteers, and all these volunteers would make phone calls to unchurched people, to people who weren't believers in Christ. So they would go door to door and they would ask this question, what do we need to do to get you to come to church? Well, how do they know the answer to that? They don't know anything about church or what church is supposed to be about. And would we really want to do what those people might suggest? No, that is the lump shaping itself. And as long as church leaders and pastors continue to communicate when they have a lump, y'all aren't a lump, 
You know how I'm using that word, right? <laughs> You're not mad at me. You know, you know, you have a lump gathered for you. What are you going to communicate to them? It's all about you. All about your comfort. Comfortable what you wear. Comfortable where you sit. Entertained by, you see, by what you see going up in front of you. No. If that happens, the church will fail to be what we are called by God to be. So how does God do it? How does God go about shaping and molding this lump of people so that they are easily identifiable? Look in verse 2. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. The discipline of the Lord your God. See, it wasn't through a process of self-discovery. It was through a process of God-discovery. That God shaped and transformed his people, what Moses refers to here in this verse as discipline. Through discipline, God makes his people easily recognizable. Who they are and why they exist. If you're reading the NIV, that's what I read out of this this morning. In verse 2, after the word God, you see a colon. And what follows that through the next, through the end of verse 7, are examples of the discipline of the Lord. The New American Standard has a dash. The ESV has a series of commas uh, in this section. But in any case, Moses reminds the people who are supposed to live in that promised land as the people of God. He gives them three examples of the discipline of the Lord. The first is the exodus from Egypt. The second is God's provision for them while they were in the desert for 40 years. And the third is the destruction of these rebels, Dathan and Abira. Now, those are three very different kinds of events. Some of them are positive. Some of them are negative. Some of them are are events in which the people of God participated. Some of them, they were passive. But all of this variety of, of experience are called God's discipline. And that's because the word used here in verse 2 for discipline is very broad. And it refers to the entire education process that God uses. The entire education process that God uses to shape and transform his people. God says in his word, Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. So God is the potter, his people are the clay. And the point is that discipline comes from God acting outside of his people. God's people take those events, they look at them, they ponder them, they meditate on them, they internalize them, and say, go to work, this event that I've experienced in my heart. Go to work in my mind and transform me by the truth of what I've seen. That's what the discipline of the Lord is. And so I want to spend the next few minutes, the rest of our time together, actually, looking at this first discipline mentioned in these verses, the deliverance of God's people from the slavery of Egypt, and see how you and I might be shaped by this same discipline. Look in verse 3. It says that the people saw the signs that God performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. So how is what happened to Pharaoh, how is what happened to the Egyptian army supposed to be a discipline for God's people? Well, it educated them about the character of God. What about the character of God? Well, many things, but one potentially that God is a patient God. See, Pharaoh had at least... Ten opportunities 
to obey God. Before the first plague was ever visited upon uh, the nation of Egypt, at Moses' very first request to Pharaoh, let God's people go, Pharaoh could have obeyed. You know what? You're right, Moses. These people aren't mine. They don't belong to me. We've actually wrongfully enslaved them. So you know what? I'm going to let God's people go. But we know the story, and Pharaoh didn't do that. So what happens? Well, plague one comes along. Pharaoh could have said then, Oh, God, I see now that you really are God. I see that you mean business. Thank you, God, the universe, for for coming to me, revealing yourself to me, so that I may repent and so that I may obey you. But that's not what Pharaoh did, is it? So God sent a second plague and a third plague and a fourth plague, and you know the story. And sometimes after those plagues early on, Pharaoh would say, okay, okay, I'll let God's people go. And I wonder how quickly that news spread. And I'm like, hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Pharaoh said, yeah, yeah. He said, we can go. Let's go. He said, we can go. But the next day, Pharaoh would always change his mind and always go back on his promise and he would keep God's people in bondage. And so the Lord sent another plague and another plague and another plague. Why? The people of God may ask. Is the Lord so patient? Why is he giving Pharaoh so many chances? It's interesting how easy it is for us to ask that question about somebody else's life, isn't it? Lord, why are you giving them so many chances? Second Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But with Pharaoh, even the tenth plague wasn't enough. The death of the firstborn. The death of his firstborn. Though he commanded God's people to leave Egypt immediately after the plague, he quickly repented of that decision. And he sent his army in pursuit of them. You know the story. The Egyptian army pursued God's people. And when they attempted to pass through the Red Sea that God had divided for his people, when the Egyptian army was in the midst of it, God allowed the waters, God commanded the waters, to return to their place. The Egyptian army was completely destroyed. As Moses says here in verse 4, the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. Now how is this discipline for God's people? What's here for God's people to learn? Well, in addition to the patience of God, I think it's very clear that we see the power of God. After the Egyptian army was drowned, And Moses and God's people were safely on the other side of the Red Sea. Moses leads his people in singing. And here's the song they sing. It's recorded in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I will praise him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them. Like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the blast of your nostrils, 
The waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who's like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. The Lord reigns forever and ever. See, this is a song of the power of God. And after they sang that, Moses' sister Marion, she took the women, got tambourines, they began to sing and dance the same thing. Sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. You know, for many years when I began preaching, I would not read passages like this because, you know, I felt, well, it's best to protect people from violent scenes like this or from people rejoicing over them. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. I, I don't think I should read those out loud. Well, I repent of that. Because you know what? God's people aren't rejoicing over the destruction of the army of Egypt. God's people are rejoicing over God's power to accomplish his purpose. God's people are rejoicing over God's power to accomplish his purpose. And that purpose is right in the middle of this song that I've read. It's in verse 13. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Listen. To be redeemed by God is a great and glorious thing. To be guided by God is a great and glorious thing. To be taken, led into the holy presence of the living God is the ultimate experience that any created being could ever experience. And so God's people are rejoicing that nothing can thwart God's plan to redeem his people, to lead his people, and to guide his people into his very presence. And so in the plagues and in the Red Sea, God taught his people this truth. I love my people. I will rescue my people. My judgment will have to fall because I will not allow any power on earth to stand against my will to make these people my own. It's the same thing that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says he's convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, the present, the future, nor any powers, height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Is that good news? God has determined that nothing will separate him from his people. And that's what God taught his people in his discipline. His patience is great, but his patience is not a mask for inability. You know, for some parents and for some teachers, they claim to be patient, but they're really not patient at all. It's just they can't really do anything about the situation. They're powerless, and so they pretend to be patient. Not so with God. He's patient, but he's also powerful. Read the rest of that passage in Second Peter. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. 
like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. See, that's a disciplined life. So Moses and Miriam, the people of Israel, sing and rejoice not at the deaths of the Egyptian army, but at the power of God to protect and to deliver his people. They rejoice. They rejoice that their God is mighty to save. This is the discipline of the Lord when he has his people stand back and watch what he can do. This is the discipline of the Lord when they see the mightiest army on the face of the earth impotent against the almighty God. God can defeat any power that comes against his people. And so the potter takes that truth and he shapes and he molds and he disciplines his people with it. And so how does that truth shape your life right now? No power can come against God. If you're like me, the first thing you think about is your own self. You know, your own struggles, the, the, the own, your own places where you want to see God's victory in your life. It's kind of all about me, and that's okay, because it's true for you. But there's something so much bigger than that, something beyond ourselves. The discipline of the Lord, it opens up the possibility for you and for me, as God's people, to move out and bring radical change to our culture, right? If no power can stand against him. This discipline shapes people into those who believe and pray like they believe and live like they believe that revival, renewal, awakening, spiritually speaking, can actually come. You know, we seem to be losing the culture war. As we look around us, if we're honest, we as Christians seem to be losing the culture war. But the question is why? Why are we losing Is the pen of the liberal media more powerful than the living and written word of God? Are the stories produced by the entertainment industry more compelling, more powerful to change than the story of God? Are godless politicians more powerful than God? Is anti-Christian legislation able to to gag or defeat or stop the purpose of God? Are they? No. Then why do we so often act as if they can? See, it's only when you and I are undisciplined people. When we're undisciplined. When we believe that we are hopeless. Or when we believe that God is not powerful, that we don't even bother to engage these areas. In fact, every area of our culture with the good news of the gospel. You all may be growing weary of hearing the stories of my regrets, um, but I'm getting a little older. I have a lot of regrets, and I'm probably going to have a lot more. But if we can be changed by them, then I guess regrets can serve a good purpose. This regret comes from Halloween. We just had it. 1996. Our kids at the time were eight, six, four. Two, and Anna Ruth was just a few weeks from being born. 
Well, I decided that the <clears throat> reverend and his family were not going to participate in this godless, pagan celebration. So I locked all the doors in our house. I turned out all the lights, all of them, and I took the entire family to this little room at the back of the house where I closed the curtains so no one from the outside could see the glow of the television, the only light visible in the house. Our house was blacked out as well as any house in England during World War II. (laughs) And there we hid in our dark little house on Tip Top Street. In fact, we lived in the second highest elevation house in the entire city. Too bad our lights were out. If the doorbell rang anyway, I said, shh. (laughs) Nobody move. Don't make any noise. I promise you I'm telling you the truth. And I'm sure the kids were wondering, what is up with Dad? But when they're those ages, you know, Dad is still a hero. And so there are my kids, and they obeyed. They did everything I said. And there we stayed in the evening, huddled in this little heap on the pull-out sleeper sofa. Hmm. We really showed those Halloweeners, didn't we? (laughs) And I didn't have an opportunity to ask my kids this morning if they remember that Halloween. Do you all remember that Halloween? Probably Kate and Brooke do. I hope they've forgotten it, really. You know, forgotten. We did this, I promise you. Forgotten, the hiding away, as if we were powerless. As if this day really did belong to Satan. As if he really were more powerful than God. As if on this day, well, you know what? On this one day of the year, we better keep a low profile. Hope they've forgotten the missed opportunities to get out into the community and to meet our neighbors on the street and be really intentional about getting to know them, to be a light for Christ. Or even to stay home and just open the door when the doorbell rang and reenact the gospel for those goblins and scary masked kids that would be standing there with their bags open, waiting to receive a treat. As someone pointed out to me, this is a picture of the gospel. We come to Jesus. We're marred. We're scary looking. We're made ugly by our sin and the way it's ravaged our lives and the consequences of our sin. But Jesus doesn't recoil at the sight of us. He doesn't run and hide to get away from us. He doesn't slam the door in our faces when he sees the ugly mess that sin has made of us. Instead, we come to him in our ugliness. And in return, he holds out the best treat ever. The treat of himself treat of eternal life that he offers to everyone who will place their faith and their hope in him for salvation. So had I been a disciplined person, I would have remembered the patience of God in that moment. He's patient with me and my family. Patient with the children who would have been standing in front of me, who might not have known him. Patient with their parents who would have been standing behind them, parents who had allowed or encouraged these ghoulish, often demonic outfits. And there we would have all been alive in that moment. Because the Lord is patient. 
And as long as we were all alive, there was an opportunity for repentance. And that, I know, is what the Lord desires. A disciplined person would have known that Christ is life. And the life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, in fact, cannot overcome it. There is no reason to fear. There is no reason to hide. And so that's my regret. Not only what I did, not only the missed opportunities, but the example that I set for my children. Look in verse 2, as Moses tells the people, Your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. So it's the obligation of those of us who have seen it, who have been disciplined by God, who have been taught by God, who have seen His wonderful work in our lives, to discipline our children with what we know to be true of God. And I don't want to repeat that regret. Not with my family and and not with you all. The church here, gathered together. And so while I have the privilege of preaching on a passage like this one, I will discipline all of us by putting before all of our eyes the glory of the power of the one and only true and living God. And I will proclaim to you that no power can stand against him. And then I'll ask you, as I ask myself, what are we going to do with that truth? How are we going to allow that truth to discipline our lives? Why should you and I be passive spectators instead of active participants in what God is doing to advance his kingdom? Why should we always be looking wistfully back at the first great awakening under Jonathan Edwards and and George Whitfield in the 1740s or the Great Awakening in the 1850s that produced men like Dwight L. Moody or any spiritual awakening, awakening at any time where people in great numbers turned in great faith to God. What power can prevent an awakening in our own time? Why should we think that our culture, as we see it today, is too far gone to ever pull it back? Christians have thought that in every culture before every awakening ever happened, not the least of which was Martin Luther. And and not only the culture he lived in, but the church of which he was a part was corrupt before the Reformation that we've just celebrated on Friday. And yet God acted powerfully. So here's a prayer that I want all of us to pray together. It's in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 664. Habakkuk is a little bit hard to find there toward the end of the Old Testament. But it's Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. This is what the prophet Habakkuk prayed. Chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I have heard of your fame. Have you heard of the fame of the Lord? I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Are you in awe by the power of God? Repeat them in our day, 
in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. If every one of us, what might the Lord do if every single one of us here prayed that prayer every day? Look, it's two lines. You could do it. Every day, go to Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2, and pray that prayer. Do it, Lord, in our day. That's the prayer of a person who's been disciplined by God. Because this is the desire of the person who has been shaped by God. Lord, do in our day what you did then. The question is, is that the desire of your heart? You know, this morning we are coming right now in just a few minutes to the table of the Lord. And as we come, we are reminded that God is always the same. He is the eternal, unchanging God. Always, always, he pours out his wrath and he turns his mighty power against whoever or whatever would keep his people from coming into his holy dwelling place. Sin kept people in bondage, refusing to let them go, chained up, bound up, making them suffer in the bitterness of that life of sin. And so what did God do? He unleashed his power against that sin. Death threatened to separate his people from him forever. So what did God do? He acted in power and he poured out his wrath against sin and death on the cross. That's what he did. He poured out his wrath against whatever would keep his people from being able to enter into his presence. And so on the cross, he broke the power of sin. He defeated death and he opened the way into his holy dwelling place for all who would, by faith, believe in him. And so we remember at the table, as we come this morning, and we ask God, for what reason? We ask Jesus, Lord Lord Jesus, for what reason did you make this choice? To die on the cross, to defeat sin and death there. Father God, why did you pour out your wrath on your son, not someone else's, but your son. For what kind of life for us to live did you do this? For what kind of life did you do this for us to live? How are we using that life? How is the discipline of God shaping us to people who are easily recognized as God's people going about God's purpose? 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do need to be people who are shaped and molded by you. Lord, that's the point of the gospel, that you do for us what we could never do ourselves. If we're always looking inside and digging deeper, or encouraging other people to do that with the hope that we'll find some goodness there, or the ability to be who you've called us to be, or do what you've called us to do, we'll be hopeless, Lord. It takes you acting outside of our lives. It takes you acting in our lives. Then it requires us, Lord, responding 
of what you teach us through your word. Father, we need to be people who live lives of righteousness, people who die to sin and live to righteousness, people who are thankful for your patience but don't take it for granted, people who believe in your power and so without fear and without hesitation, without putting it off to another time, we proclaim the good news of the gospel to those people that you have placed around us in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for your spirit. Thank you for his work in us and pray that you're, even in these next few moments, will be shaping and molding us into your people. Let's continue in prayer now. We have a, a few moments while they go get the children and bring them in. And this is our time as we continue to pray, keep our eyes closed, to let the truth of God discipline us. So this is a time to be disciplined by the truth of God. So I'll be quiet now as the Spirit of God works among us. We're going to take that opportunity now that we've talked about to come to the table of the Lord. Remembering all the things that we've talked about this morning. And praying that this would be a discipline, this grace of God that would transform and shape and mold us. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're invited to come to the table. Invited to come. All who are believers, come to the table of the Lord. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we ask you not to come. We don't want you to uh, do something that would be displeasing to the Lord. But as you come, I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. Uh, There are people who may not want to come to the table of the Lord because they're not a believer. Maybe you're here and you're a believer and you're just living in rebellion uh, to the Lord. And at this point in your life, you're just not willing to give up that sin. You really shouldn't come to the table of the Lord. This table is not for people who are sinless. But everybody who comes, as they come, is proclaiming, you know, I'm going to commit now before you, Lord, uh, to die to sin and to live to you. So you come, but let's not come row by row, because then people feel pressured to come if they're on that row. Let's just make this an organic coming. You pray, you come when you're ready. And the elders will be here uh, at either side to receive you. So if you take the cup and the bread and go back to your seat, when everybody's been served, uh, we will uh, partake of the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Father, we do ask now that you would set aside these elements from their common use of bread and cup, Lord, and transform them in a way that is uh, mysterious to us. But use them, as little as it is, to strengthen us in our inward being so that we are able more and more to die to self and to live to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. Thank you that you're the host here and that you call your people to come. That as we come, as we eat, as we drink, we proclaim the good news of the gospel until you come back for us. So we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks for it, 
He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the remission of sin. As you're ready, we invite you to come to the table of the Lord. Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Jesus said, this cup, the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for many for the remission of sin. For how many of your sins does the blood of Christ atone? All of it. Drink of it. All of you. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, once more we bow before you. Humble hearts with hearts full of gratitude to you for who you are and for what you have done for us. Hearts full of longing, Lord, that you would make us more and more the people that you've called us to be, easily recognizable, and that we would do more and more the things that you have called us to do in our day and our time as we call on you to work on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.